we have a reading about murder, anger, lust, adultery, divorce, false promises. What could be more applicable to this week in our context than this piece of scripture? So I would say that God wants to say a word, not just to us, but to our community this morning. And the, the word that I hear from God is obedience versus holiness. Obedience versus holiness. Now, <clears throat> this is Jesus' first sermon that we have recorded in Matthew's Gospel. And so, in this particular sermon, it goes for three chapters. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. And we refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount, unless you read it in Luke and it's the Sermon on the Plain. Um, it's a whole long story, we won't get into that today. So what we do see here, what we see here is that this sermon is quite unique among the teachings of Jesus' day. You see, most other rabbis that were teaching, they came from a particular school and they would be influenced by that school. The, the two primary schools of Jesus' day were the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. So they would quote their teachers, these rabbis, from their school. Rabbi Hillel once said, or Rabbi Shammai said, or they would quote other scholars, other references, to substantiate their arguments that they were making in interpreting the law, the writings, and the prophets. Now the people of that day were familiar with these schools, kind of like you may be familiar with different denominations. You know, if you're a Lutheran, and there's not a Lutheran church nearby, you might tell your family or friends, well, you can go to the Methodist church, but I'd stay far away from the Baptist church. Wouldn't the Lutherans say something like that? Now, if you're a Pentecostal, they would say, you can go anywhere but stay far, far away from the Lutheran churches. <laughs> so, as we understand different denominations and different perspectives of interpretation, that's kind of how these schools of rabbinical thought were in the days of Jesus. The difference was that when Jesus preaches this sermon, I guess first of all we should clarify, Jesus never went to one of the schools of rabbinic teaching. That'd be like having a preacher that didn't go to seminary. Oh wait, we do have that on occasion, don't we? Um, see, what, what he did was he, he represented the law and the writings and the prophets and his interpretation of them wasn't reliant upon a rabbi or a, a rabbinical school of thought. His interpretation relied upon his father, upon God. So when Jesus would teach, it was different. In, in the end of Matthew 7, we get the, uh, the conclusion and the response of the people, verses 28 and 29. 
This is after Jesus has completed this three chapters of sermon. When Jesus had finished, you see, if I preached for three chapters, you'd all be sleeping. But when Jesus preached for three chapters, this is what they said. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. You see, the difference was that Jesus spoke for God and not for another rabbi. Jesus cut to the chase and quoted his father. You have heard the law say this, but I tell you. You have heard the writings say this, but I tell you. Jesus is clear that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so in verse 17 of our reading from last week, we are reminded of that. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the writings and the prophets. You have heard that the law says, but I say. You have heard that it is written, but I say. Jesus is clear. He is the fulfillment of the law. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you that I, I believe that humanity is sinful and unclean. I, I was asked once, do you believe in progress? And I thought about that question, and my response was, uh, yes, I do believe in progress because I've seen some amazing progressions in different aspects of our lives, different fields of science. But I also believe in regression, where we fall back and we lose much of what we have gained. That became really clear for me when I was in college. Patty and I were, were privileged to be able to go to Israel and study uh, during one of our college years. And one of the things that we studied was um, the Romans and their engineering feats. And, and they, were, they were really quite amazing because they built these canals, like we have these canals in Arizona. They built these canals like 2,500 years ago, uh, 2,000 years ago. They, they built paved roads. They built plumbing. They had indoor toilets. Well, King Herod did. I'm not sure everyone else did. The technological advances of that era were simply amazing. At the same time, I was a student of the Reformation, and one of the things that I learned about the Reformation, especially the era of the Middle Ages, was that all of those things that Romans had created, plumbing and canals and roads, they were demolished, they were destroyed in wars, 
and disrepair. And whereas the people of the Middle East had received clean water, in the Middle Ages, people died at large numbers of cholera, which comes from unclean drinking water. And so as progressed as we became, we have regressed as well. I believe in progress, but I also believe in regression because of our sinful humanity. While I'm not a huge advocate for progress, I mean, I'm not going to say things are going to get better and better and better forever and ever on this earth, but I am a big advocate for character. And that means something as we take a look at this question. What is more important, your obedience or your holiness? Well, let's begin with obedience. Many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day and, and of our day advocate for obedience. And, I mean, obedience is a good thing. We, we have road signs that tell us how fast we can drive, when we need to caution, when we need to stop, when we can go. And it's good to be obedient to those laws, is it not? Doesn't it provide us a modicum of safety, security? But what if we're obedient and we still violate the law? You don't know this about me, but I have a big scar on my on the face of my palm, right along here. It's a long scar. And uh, I got that scar when I was four or five years old. You see, my mother used to, well, she was an avid bridge card player, you know, the, the bridge, the, the game, the card game. And uh, she would have, uh, she was part of a couple of weekly bridge groups. I think she played with your group a couple times, Judy. And, um, you know, I was, I was a toddler um, preschooler in the 60s. And uh, so when my mom hosted a bridge club party, you know, uh, smoking in the home was still quite uh, acceptable. And so there'd be ashtrays all over, and then there'd be lunch with, served with cocktails. Uh, this is truly in the 60s, you know. And <clears throat> so when she had her bridge club, I would have a babysitter because I wasn't in school yet. So after the, you know, the ladies would all meet for lunch and their cocktails and their smokes and then, uh, then they'd play a couple hours of cards and, uh, and then uh, it would kind of wrap up. And so my, my oldest brother would get home from school about that time and my mom then would use that opportunity to drive the babysitter home. This is a small town, so, you know, you can go across town, it's probably three miles. Uh, so it was not a long trip. So my brother was in charge of me, and I really wanted to help my mom. And so I was picking up the ashtrays from the card tables and taking them and dumping them. I wanted to dump them in the trash can. 
and my brother got really angry with me and he told me to stop it. I didn't quite put it all together. I'm not the brightest bulb in the pack. Um, he is one of the brighter bulbs in the pack, so he knew very well what could happen. And um, so I kept fighting him and telling him, no, I wanted to help mom. And finally he just grabbed him and he took him away from me so that I couldn't disobey him, right? But I was so angry inside. I took my hand and we had this little, it was in the springtime, so the, the big front door was open and the, the screen door, the, the storm door was there with the window and I started pounding my hand on that window and that's how I got the scar. <laughs> you see, I, I stopped taking the ashtrays. I was obeying the law. But deep inside of me, I really wasn't obeying the law. Because I was really angry. I was really angry with my brother. see, my intent was to help my mother not to violate the law, but I, by refusing to listen to my older brother, I caused me to sin in anger against him and against the window, and hence my failure with obedience. Now Jesus is saying that you could be obedient to the law, but still violate the law. I'm talking about the spirit of the law as well as the law itself. He says, it says in the scriptures, do not murder. But, but is it okay to get so angry with someone that you could kill them, even if you didn't? He says, the scriptures tell us to worship the Lord your God. If you're offering a sacrifice in the temple, that's an act of worship, isn't it? So if you're worshiping God, and all of a sudden you remember that someone has something against you back home, then you should leave the worship service, go back home, find that person, and reconcile with them. Now, if you came to Jerusalem from Galilee... I mean, if you're really, really physically fit, you know, my wife would make it in a day. Uh, me, it would take two to three days. And, and so that's just one way. So think about that. You know, you're offering your sacrifice, you're worshiping God. Oh, I need to go back home and reconcile with my neighbor. Run up the, well, run down the hill from Jerusalem, down into uh, Galilee, probably up and down a little bit. And then, and then when you get there, reconcile, and then, then it's a couple more days for you to get back down to Jerusalem to finish your worship. How many of us are going to do that? The act of worship is not as important, Jesus is saying, as the spirit in which it is done. He says, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who has looked at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Earlier in his teaching, Jesus has said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
You see, it's not just the act of sinning, but it's what's in our hearts. The intent is as problematic as the act. And when we damage our relationships with one another, we damage our relationship with God. Then he talks about do not break any oaths. That's what the, ra- the religious rabbis would say to the people. But Jesus says, I say to you, do not make any oaths. That sounds a little strange when you first read it or first hear it. But one of the things that we know about this time is that <clears throat> for Jesus, um, what, he, what he is implying is that everything that we say as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, everything that we say should be truthful. There should be no need for an oath. And then there's that reference, but uh, don't even say an oath to to the heavens or to the earth or to Jerusalem. That was kind of a trick. Um, the, The rabbis taught the people, now don't make your oath to God because then you're committed. But make it to heaven or make it to the earth or make it to the city of Jerusalem so you can always you can always back out of it you can always lie and what what Jesus is saying is you can't even do that because the heavens that's the throne of God the earth that's the footstool of God and Jerusalem that's the home of the Messiah so don't even make an oath to those Instead, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Now, if you preach that sermon in Washington, D.C., I think the place would go apocalyptic. But for us, as followers of Jesus, there is no other way. We are called to live like Jesus lived. Your testimony, your word, should always be reliable. As a Christian, your oath should always be statements of truth. When they take you into the courtroom and you're on the jury, they want you to listen. And when that witness comes and says that he swears that he's going to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, according to God, what he is saying is, that he is going to speak honestly. And so what Jesus is saying is it's, it's okay to do that kind of an oath. But as Christians, you shouldn't really even need it. Because every time you speak, you should represent the truth, integrity, honesty. So the rabbis wanted the people to be obedient and they would look at obedience in the context of a particular interpretation. You know, if you wanted to get divorce, 
you really wanted to be from the school of, Sh of Hillel, not Shammai. Uh, Shammai, it had to be like a really, really big reason why you were filing for a divorce from your wife. Oh, by the way, women, you couldn't file for a divorce from your husband. You could petition the court and ask your husband to divorce you, but um, it was always the man's prerogative. And so when, when the school of Hillel um, developed their rationale for divorce, it was like, well, if your wife ruins the dinner, you can divorce her. So people really liked the school of Hillel, I guess. What's going on here, right? I mean, what's the intent? Is it to fulfill the law in a way that lets you get away with what you want to get away with? Or is Jesus, I mean, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. <laughs> if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What's going on here? These are impossible. And that's exactly where Jesus wants us. Because we are sinful and unclean. We will need to rely on someone besides ourselves. So let's talk about holiness. Holiness is not a gift or a title you get when you are perfectly obedient. Oh, he is so holy. He obeys all the laws. Holiness is a gift. It's a character that forms within you as you follow Jesus more closely. Now, I was reared with the idea that you worked really, really hard. I mean, I come from that Midwest work ethic. And you worked also on, in my family, some of the uh, accolades were for academics. They wanted really excellent academics and honors and awards, all of those things. GPAs, all that stuff was highly valued. And when I was younger, my parents and my church really worked at forming um, a decent person within me somebody with some character. But as I became an adult, the character kind of was assumed. It wasn't worked on, it wasn't practiced, it wasn't really developed, it was just kind of assumed. But I still had to perform with the GPAs, I mean, uh, college, seminary, grad school, uh, so uh, all these expectations were still there, the honors, the awards, the knowledge, the information. And after years of, of doing that and then coming into ministry and wanting to be recognized for being a good pastor, all of these things continue to work on you, right? I mean, you've done it in your work, most likely, in your life. Try to become accomplished and successful. But the, the thing that was missing was the character. The thing that was missing was the assumption that 
that there was something to work on within me. After years of working my way up the ladder, I was, after my third heart surgery, we had just finished building the school and opening it, I was tired. And um, I was frustrated because all the things that had worked for me in the earlier years weren't working anymore. And that's, that's about the time that I was introduced to this, this crazy concept of discipleship. Not, not, I mean, earlier discipleship teachings were, here are the list of things you should do. But my refocus around discipleship 12, 15 years ago was really more around just following Jesus. And the first way for me to follow Jesus was to take accountability for myself. See, I think that's something that we miss a lot in our culture today. Uh, I mean, without this practice, I'm really quick to blame everyone else. And so it needs to begin with me. When nothing else seemed to be working anymore, I decided, well, I'll give it a try. And I was introduced to this process. And after a couple of years of working on this, I received the greatest honor that I could have received. No, I didn't win the top award for the best disciple. <laughs> the greatest. They didn't give out those awards because if they did, you'd be the least, right? Uh, no, I didn't get that. What I got was my wife and I were in the living room doing devotions one morning and she looked over at me and she said, there's something different about you. Now that could mean a lot of things. But what I remember her saying was, you're more patient and you're more loving. Now I didn't set out to try to become more patient, more loving. And I can tell you that I am not an example of patience and love. Not all the time. But if she saw that in me, then maybe there's something to it. What's changed for you? Holiness is something that you can't attain. You cannot earn it. You can't achieve it. You can't grasp it. Holiness is a gift that comes as God changes you, transforms you, puts your life back into the order that God intended it to be. That's holiness. And holiness becomes a part of who you are, not what you do. You know, I think it's really a, uh, an insightful thought that when God created us, God created us as human beings and not human doings. You know, we, we live our lives as human doings, but God wanted us to be human beings. Let's just be. Let's be with God and be with one another. So my final question for this morning is this. Do you want to be obedient? Or do you want to be holy? Is there room to be both? 
my invitation is for you to find someone to talk about that question after worship. Do you want to be obedient or do you want to be holy? And if the Holy Spirit puts something on your heart, visit with someone about that. If you don't have anyone to visit, email me. Let's have a conversation. Because I want us to be a church that people see in this community and they say there's something different about that church. They're more loving. They're not so angry like some of the other churches that I've seen. Let's be different. Amen?